go for and have a visit to Dunkers worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernhuntassociation.com. It is the 8th of April 2019 and this is episode 108. On today's programme, Joe Sutcliffe talks about his father's account of his time as an infantryman in the Great War. I spoke to Phil from his home in London. Phil, welcome yeah. to the Dispatches podcast. We're going to talk about your father's experience during the Great War. Before we get stuck in, could you tell us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War and your father's part in it? Yes. Uh, well, it's it's definitely Dad first and uh, Great War second, although I did see that uh, legendary series on TV when I was a kid. What was it called? The World at War, wasn't it? Uh, which uh, was quite something, especially having some vague knowledge that my dad was there. Uh, but anyway, I'm uh, I'm 71 now. Uh, I was born in 1947, and my father was 49 then, so that's how come we have this uh, great span of years. Not unique at all, I know, but uh, some, still somewhat uh, unusual to have uh, the uh, child of a person who fought in the First World War um, uh, talking about these things. Yeah, he, he, I was delayed, I should say, because uh, my parents didn't want to uh, bring a kid into a world that Hitler might be ruling. But by 47, of course, that had been resolved. So then I turned up. Anyway, so my, I'm a, I've been a journalist all my working life, uh, nearly 50 years, uh, which has something to do with why this book happened. My dad told me about his service when... Uh, I was in my teens. I, I was in school holidays, um, home a lot, and we chatted. And, you know, we generally uh, got on, uh, even though, in a sense, he was grandfather age rather than father age in the orthodox scheme of things. And, uh, well, I just got fascinated. His memory was so extraordinary. The detail was extraordinary. Um, it wasn't, oh, I was there, and that happened. Uh, it was what happened to him from the inside, and his memory was so vivid. And, you know, it's like uh, memories of all the senses. So you would get the sight and the sound and the smell and sometimes the taste of things. I'm thinking of poison gas there. And uh, so you felt it profoundly, I would say. So uh, gradually I heard many of his stories, never bored for a second, uh, like uh, kids can be by older people's stories. And uh, so I started uh, nagging at him. Oh, write it down, Dad. But I'm only a kid who left school at 14, you know. what? Oh, I can't write a book. Oh, yes, Dad, you, you're very, uh, you've got a real good vocabulary. You know how to write. You correct my homework often enough, don't you? You know, and all those kind of conversations went off. My mum pitched in and said, yes, I'm gone. Write it down. You can do it. And so what happened was when they moved house from London, where I grew up, down to Devon in his old age, uh, from about 1972 to 74, he wrote it. And when I say wrote it, he recorded the first part on reel-to-reel tape, which uh, he sent to me and I transcribed. And then uh, I was an apprentice journalist by then. And then uh, he started typing it. And that got too painful for him because of the... Uh, after effects of surgery for cancer he had. And uh, so he started handwriting it. And then there's the huge task of editing it for August 2014. Of course, that was the target, you know. And I made it. I got it published, self-published. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that's how it occurred. That's me and that's how it occurred. Right, let's go to the beginning. And can you start by telling us about your father's background, his family and, and where he grew up? He had oddity about family background, which is that he was born 
rich in Manchester. Uh, the family ran a tile factory. However, by the time he was two, or at least three, they were ruined. Uh, my grandfather, who I never met, was not a businessman. He inherited the company. He blew it. And so they ended up in, I think, 1901, as far as I can tell, on a train to London with not enough money to pay for tickets for all the kids, and the ticket inspector forgave them. And uh, so they were doing a flit, and they ended up in poverty, the whole family, which was four kids at that time, and the parents, in Tottenham and then Edmonton in North London, scraping a living initially, real poverty. Outstanding image I have of dad in poverty, hunger, is seeing a boy eating paper on the street and dad thinking, oh, oh, maybe that would fill my belly. And, uh, and so he took to eating paper for about five minutes before he decided that wasn't worth it. That was too much. Hungry as he was, eating paper. The family's fortunes gradually improved. Dad, who'd been depressed by his poor situation and the general lot of fear in life when you're at that level, you know. Where's the next meal coming from? All sorts of other things have a fearful aspect to them as well. So he had that as a small kid, uh, though somewhat protected by his uh, older brother, Ted, and his uh, older sister, Sis. But his life improved. The financial circumstances got to be bearable as his dad got a menial job and then a slightly better menial job and so on. Mum went out to work a bit and so on, which wasn't normal. Uh, he ended up with his life, his kid life, enhanced by music and Boy Scouts who just started. So we're talking here about 1910, say, and the church choir and all of those things made him uh, a much happier kid as he moved into his teens. But uh, 14, he had to leave school because they couldn't afford further education, which happened to so many young boys and girls back then. Um, happened to my mum 20 years later, even. And so he ended up in a job as a junior office boy up in the city. And after two years of that, he was getting pretty depressed because uh, he just couldn't see anything but this grey future for himself. There's one very vivid description of, in a sense, a common enough scene everybody leaving the office and this great river of people heading for Liverpool Street Station, you know, and uh, feeling part of that mass, which is you know, interesting in relation to what comes up, feeling, feeling part of that mass, feeling a grey life uh, coming up, wondering how the hell he could change that. And that is not entirely irrelevant to the coming of August 1914, when Dad was just 16, because his birthday's in July. And what happened then? He joined up at the start of the war. Why did he, why did he yeah. enlist? Uh, well, of course, it, it's a complex of reasons. And as far as I can tell, and uh, one of the great things about his memoir is that it seems to me he really does speak honestly and comprehensively about what was going on. So you had the general picture, which was that there was there'd been a war fever, an anti-German fever going on amongst uh, the people for at least a couple of years. And so you got it everywhere. Uh, it was in the straight newspapers. It was in stories in the weekly magazines that a lot of them read. You know, the uh, weekly magazines then were um, like week-by-week -week fiction. I don't know how that's Charles Dickens and his living. And uh, a lot of other good writers and so one of the favorite fantasies of the time was about the German invasion and repelling it heroically was the norm, at least, uh, in, uh, in the fiction. So, and then you'd get the um, talk. And so when you're on your way to work, everybody on the 
train from Edmonton to Liverpool Street. Talking, talking. The war's going to happen. The war's going to happen. When's it going to happen? What's going to happen? You know, how's it going to go? Uh, rumors, rumors, rumors. Um, then the invasion of little Belgium and so on uh, really sets fire to things. Also, you've got these huge um, enlistment meetings, public meetings going on, uh, but stirring up patriotic spirits. Um, uh, all of that was going on, and people in the street, every ordinary people, were caught up in it. Um, but then you get the final trigger. So the war starts in Dad's family. Nothing happened immediately. However, in September, and uh, uh, his older brother Ted, who was his hero too, uh, constantly, um, and his two mates, Lennon Harold, scene where they tell Sam, this is what we're going to do. Now, Sam had become their pal as well. His, just He was going through one of those phases in life where his best friends were his brothers, his older brother's friends. Uh, and so he said, right, I'm not staying behind. I'm going with you. And that's that was the immediate trigger. He rushed at it. He hadn't really thought, I'm going to join up, despite all the uh, societal uh, hoo-ha and pressure. Uh, he he responded to his brother deciding to do it. So he managed to sneak through. His brother was slightly underage as well. He was 18. Um, but uh, Dad was uh, three years underage because it was really 19. And lied about his age, worried a lot about lying about his age because he was a good Boy Scout and also he might get caught. You know, they uh, Off they went. When I say off they went, in his case, of course, it wasn't very immediate. Um, he wasn't, as he rather expected and feared, um, sent immediately to uh, what was forming up as the Western Front by then. I don't think it had quite solidified come September, October 1914. But uh, they knew hell was going on over there. They knew we, we the British, were getting beaten. Uh, so, you know, it was already a matter of uh, fear and apprehension. So tell me about um, his service and what units he, he was rotated through over the four years of the war. So he started off, the one he, one he signed, uh, signed up with, September the 10th, 1914, that was up in King's Cross, the uh, recruitment office there, Royal Fusiliers, 2 1st uh, London Regiment, uh, Territorial, the Royal Fu- those Royal Fusiliers. Um, and uh, so with them uh, he trained in, in England a good deal uh, London and Tunbridge February the 1st they sailed to Malta through a hellish storm never will see more seasick in his life than on that uh, voyage they ended up in Malta lovely said Sam he just loved it his first ever foreign country so Malta great he just loved the whole thing and they were there training uh, they were there from February to August. Then they moved to Egypt. Then they moved to Gallipoli. So he fought Gallipoli. So they then, that uh, battalion, much reduced, down to about 250 men from 1,000, went via rest and recreation in Egypt to the Western Front in April 1916. But there, to their absolute disgust with the army uh, they were disbanded they wanted they'd got a lot of that bonding that you get from battle uh, they got that bonding and they hated being broken up they wanted to be reinforced back to a battalion that they could sort of be the um, the core of but no they were broken up so dad got sent to the kensingtons and they by then were already on the Somme front they were uh, around a village called Edwardturn which is opposite Gomico, the sector of the Somme Front that is normally known by the name of Gomico, which was the village on the other side in the in German hands. 
uh, up on the northern end of the Somme front. And he spent a long time there, including July the 1st. Uh, they moved further south later, August, September. And in September, he was revealed, uh, so to speak, to be only 18, um, i.e. still too young for the battlefield. And uh, that provoked another big change in his, quotes, career in uh, the army. Um, he was very relieved to um, leave the front. You know, he'd been in. So he was quite glad to go home. That meant another change, though. Now, they posted him to Harrogate. They moved him, oddly enough, in Harrogate to the Essex Regiment, the 27th Battalion Essex. And he spent uh, more than a year, as it turned out, back home. Uh, in, I mean, in England, not at home. And uh, then finally, more or less on his own, he went to France and joined, eventually managed to join his battalion. Uh, for a long time he was in France, didn't know where his own battalion was, you know. But uh, he got based in Arras, and he ran into, virtually, his own battalion in March uh, in Arras, joined up with them as a signaller again. And so what he ended up, his final fighting chapter, was March outside Arras with the Essex lads fighting against the spring offensive. It reached them uh, later in the, in the whole process of the uh, Operation Mars, whatever. And uh, on March the 28th, he was in a battle, his uh, battalion was in a battle where they were sacrificed to cover the British retreat. And that day, they fought to the last bullet, quite literally. They lost a hell of a lot of men, of course, but the last bullet was what they'd been ordered to do. And Dad became uh, a prisoner of war. That's how he spent the last eight months of the war. I think it's eight months from March to November the 11th. So how did he regard his time in khaki? Very mixed feelings, of course. All sorts of uh, different feelings come up through it. Uh, so I can only give samples because it was so... I, I guess there was no feeling that he always had. He came to enjoy being a part of a band of brothers. Never used that phrase, but clearly that was part of what happened in his first uh, battalion via suffering through Gallipoli, which that's what it was almost entirely for them, uh, getting there in September. Uh, Souvla play, being evacuated, going back in again, his little remnants of battalion, to help with the evacuation of V Beach, coming out of there January the 6th. It was all frustration. He landed on the beach at Suvla Bay, actually wanting to attack. He was in the spirit of it at that moment, you know, and they're told to dig in. And from that moment, he describes how disappointment set in, you know. Uh, just, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then he realizes nothing is the answer to that. Why are we here? To suffer would appear to be the answer by that stage, you know. All sense of purpose or function departed very quickly. And I guess that's no way for soldiers to feel. But he also mentions guilt. Not the only time he mentions guilt. Guilt about being a failure. That's when they, when they uh, evacuate Suvla, I think it was. Uh, he mentioned that. That's when he was particularly depressed about it. When they reached uh, Mudros, he just felt terrible. What the hell have we done? Nothing. You get the psalm and the feelings there, which is a very different battle. So there, of course, he's feeling probably the horror of battle far more than in Gallipoli. In Gallipoli, it was all sporadic action then because the Turks were just waiting for us to go, really. But the Somme 
well, everyone knows what that was like, I guess. I suppose there's uh, an experience I could single out from his last great battle, Arras, March 28th, 1918, would be the experience, he, he says, uh, because although he was a signaller, because they were told to fight to the last bullet, he, he then he sent his last signal, went into the front line. That's one of the things that comes out in that battle, the killing people. He becomes, as he describes it, an automaton. He, training kicks in. All of, I'm not quoting him word for word, I'm, but I am relaying what he says. His training kicks in. And so this ordinary boy is killing other men, many of them. As I or his comrades, of course, they're coming at them in rows. So this is the other way round to how we picture our boys going across no man's land, getting mown down. This is the Germans doing that. And Dad has a moment when uh, he clicks out, slips out of automaton mode, and that's one of the most stunning passages in the book, I think. He shoots one man, targeting. You know, he just writes about it in terms of what he'd been trained to do on targets. There's a target, you shoot him. Then he moves to the next target. Well, the man he's just shot goes down. The guy next to him, out of comradeship or actual friendship, who the hell knows, goes to help the man next to him. But he's dad's next target. So the next man dad shoots is this guy who is helping his friend. And because he's being a human being, not just one of these targets marching towards the trenches, that is a moment dad comes out of automaton mode and he... He says to himself, "Some." he writes years later, but he remembers it vividly, that that's a moment when he decided he would never fight again. Strange to say, you know, you could kill many men and not know you were killing many men because that's your training. But that was his experience and coming out of it. Oh, he said, by the way, before that, that uh, when he was doing his fighting, he also felt the joy of fighting. Before that moment, he'd felt the joy of fighting and doing something to the... <laughs> to achieve the purpose they were there for. I suppose that's it. The opposite of what he'd felt guilty about in Gallipoli, not achieving anything. He felt, well, I'm being a proper soldier here. So how did your father reflect on his service after the Great War? And how did he, for instance, view um, issues like the Second World War? Of course, one of the big things that affected him, it was that business of killing and discovering in himself, right down to, right through his very being, that he was killing human beings, they weren't just targets. All of that, the emotions around that, really stayed with him. I think that that sort of highly individual emotional experience, of course it provoked thoughts in him, but he didn't have an overview of the First War. I think he felt it, the complexity of all the issues of empire and Ah, class and uh, whatnot it were too much to say, oh, it's a good thing, it's a bad thing, that First World War. It, in, and maybe he just wasn't interested in coming to such a conclusion, which in the end ends up being trite about something massive. And he had this whole complex of experience and feelings about it. Anyway, so um, he did write this one thing, which is a generalization, but is a kind of magnificent generalization, which relates to his take on his experience and his consideration of the philosophy of pacifism. So I'll read this out. Uh, I feel one can say with some conviction that no man should willingly leave his home to fight, wound, maim or kill other men about whom he knows little 
and whom he certainly does not hate. When all men refuse to commit such follies, the foundations of a true civilization will have only just started to be laid. So that's what a man in his 70s who left school at 14 and fought the Great War came to conclude as his big philosophical conclusion. I should say that um, on the one hand, he had been introduced to the notion of pacifism when he was in the trenches on the Somme because lads coming out of London to the Kensingtons uh, who he was with at the time told him all oh, those lads back home saying they don't believe in war so they won't fight and dad had really thought about that very carefully he resented it to some degree but on the other hand he appreciated that this was quite a breakthrough in terms of the upper classes, the legislators, the powerful people, the governors, the government, recognizing the humanity of working class men, that any man could have the philosophical roundness to say that war was wrong. And if he could convince a tribunal, which this is a tricky thing, uh, that it was genuine, then he would get some kind of respect for that. And Dad had some kind of respect for it, as well as resentment, as I say. And so, but he didn't become a pacifist, as I say. What a complex view he had of all this. So when the Second World War started to become a possibility, but in particular because it was clearly going to be provoked by Hitler and fascism, he read Mein Kampf in translation, um, not by way of a potential disciple at all. He was a socialist completely opposed to fascism. He uh, decided, this guy's serious, there's going to be a war, there's no doubt about it. He trained to be a top-notch first aider before the war, and then in the war, along with Mum, who they married in December 1939, some moment to get married. Huh? Uh, they both joined the civil defence in North London, where they lived, uh, and they drove ambulances and first aided victims of the Blitz, got people out of crushed buildings, all of that sort of thing, along with the heavy rescue guys. And uh, that's how he did his service in the Second World War and felt, oh, you know, comfortable with it. I'm sorry, that's an absurd modern usage. He felt he was doing a worthwhile job and a decent job, which had no ambivalence about it. He didn't have to kill anyone. I suspect if the arithmetic had been such that he'd still been called up, he might have served because of the enemy that we had at that moment. Completely different enemy in its nature. Still Germany, I know, but such a completely different enemy to the one that uh, we'd fought in the First World War. Um, so there we are. That's how it worked out put in any ifs you like, but uh, but that's my take, that's what he said, and that's my take on how he felt about it. Finally, uh, Phil, where can people get his memoirs from? There's a website which uh, sort of you can get into the, uh, the sales process, if you will, uh, but also it's the blog, uh, so you can read bits of the book um, going back weekly over the entire four years, week by week, so it's a good read anyway. Uh, so let me say, the blog, simple name, is Foot Soldier Sam. All proceeds from the book, I must stress, go to the British Red Cross because they saved Dad's life a 
couple of times. Bill, thank you very much for your time. It's a great pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.